0: Thank you, Pete, for leading us again in our worship thus far. We will continue now through the teaching of God's holy, perfect, and inerrant Word. Last time we were together here, we began our new series on the parables of Jesus. This is where we will continue and begin again this morning. Just by way of recap, from last time, if you remember... Jesus' parables are essentially simple word pictures with profound spiritual lessons. A parable is essentially a word picture that demonstrates truth. Para, where we get the word parallel from, means to lay alongside of. So a parable is a story that has been laid alongside a truth to demonstrate its parallel reality. As we looked at last time, Jesus in his ministry, for the first two years, just spoke in in normal sermonic exhortation. But on that day in Matthew 13, as we looked at, he changed his teaching style to that of the parables. Never again did he speak in, in plain speech to the end of his ministry. And it was not to make his teaching easier for us to understand or, or to make his teaching more palatable to some, as some would believe, but rather it was primarily out of judgment. Parables have a primary role of judgment for unbelievers, those who would spurn God's offer of salvation. The parables are not meant to be clear. They are meant to hide the truth in riddles, As well as being a judgment, though, the parables also have this beautiful element of mercy. You remember from verse 48 of, of Luke chapter 12, it says, And from everyone to whom much has been given, much will be required. Essentially, this verse is saying that the more you know, yet still reject, the greater your punishment will be. So there is this mercy element to the parables as well. But for those who have been brought into the body of Christ, for those of us who know the blessing of salvation, the parables are clear because they have their central focus in the gospel. The parables are about salvation and because we have been granted salvation, we can understand them. That's so why I love preaching through the parables. It's a simple gospel message every single time. And today's parable is certainly no less. Today's parable deals with the question, how can one be made right with God? This question has been asked since fall. Job asked in chapter 9, how can I be made right with God? That is the summary question of message today. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke chapter 18, we'll be reading from verse 9. The Word of God says, And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but instead was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, he will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted may god add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning thinking about and preparing for this sermon it seems to be of of late that society has this obsession with talent shows you see on on television everywhere whether it be the voice or america's got talent american idol or the many other tv shows that are out there talent tv shows and they are highly entertaining both for the people that that do well and and are actually talented and also for the people that are not so talented. You see, that person, when when they get up on stage, they they, they stand there, they walk all confidently out and and they start their their song or their act and, and pretty soon every single person in the audience and us at home as well are cringing as they open their mouth to sing. You wonder, didn't anybody ever tell them before they went on national television? Did they ask anyone other than their own mother before they went on national television and opened their mouth to sing? They are living in a deluded state. They do not have a right assessment of themselves. Well, how about the person who signs himself up for the 21-kilometer half marathon, thinking that he is fit and, and competent? Only to realize two kilometers down that perhaps he is not as fit as he first thought. As funny or or sad as these self-delusions are, they are nothing compared to the pitiful state of those who are deluded into thinking that they are righteous in and of themselves. Those who would think that their good living actually counts for something when it comes to their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a self-delusion that sinks deeper than the rest because it has eternal consequences. But that's the kind of people Jesus is talking to here. People who are self-deluded. He's speaking, verse 9, to some who trusted in themselves. Another way of saying they were righteous in their own eyes. These people thought that they knew the answer to that question. How can somebody be made right with God? And to explain the foolishness of their ways to them, the Lord uses this beautifully simple contrasting story between the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus uses the powerful imagery of contrast to show how someone can be made right with God. He does so, I believe, with three distinct comparisons. There are many comparisons to be made, but I've Compounded, tried to compound it into four and, and then into three. We see the We see the contrast in in their character in the characters and their actions. We see the contrast in heart and finally the contrast in outcome. Let's look at the first one together. Jesus begins the parable by saying that two men went up to the temple. These two men, they go up to the temple and they do so with a purpose. Jesus said they went there to pray. One was the Pharisee, the other the tax collector. These are the two characters before us this morning. Straight away we we tend to think of of all the differences that these two have, but actually these men have, have quite a bit in common. For a start, they were they were both Jews. They could trace their lineage back to, to Abraham. They belonged to the same nation. They both had the same heritage and the same history. They both professed faith in the same God, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had appeared in a burning bush, the God who had parted the Red Sea. And they were going to his temple to pray to him. Both Acknowledged the heinousness of, of their sin, they knew it was deadly, they knew it dishonored the Lord. Both recognised their need for atonement, and both believed that this was a God that they could approach in prayer, actually had quite a lot in common, and yet we see that they actually had nothing in common. These two characters that the Lord uses were about the most two extreme people that Jesus could have used in his illustration. It would have well and truly resonated with the people. As soon as he mentioned the Pharisee and a a tax collector in the same sentence, the people would have thought that they knew the outcome of the story. To properly understand the comparison, though, we need to look closely at each character. Firstly, the Pharisee. As we know, they were highly respected people in the Jewish culture. They were fastidious in their attempts to live their life in accordance with God's law. They took the commandments of God so very seriously as we went through last time. Things like walking on the Sabbath or picking grain on the Sabbath. They were forbidden for them because of how serious they obeyed God's law. But not only did they seek to obey the Lord of God, they sought to surpass the law of God. The law of God required there to be fasting one day a year, the day before the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees thought, well, if we're going to do it one day a year, why not do it twice a week? That seems better, right? And as the Pharisee says in his prayer, so every Monday and Thursday he would fast. The Pharisees would also pride themselves on their tithing. God's law required a tithe of everything that they received as an income. But the Pharisees thought, well, it's not good enough just to tithe on that. And they tithed on what they bought on top of that as well, in case that that person hadn't actually tithe on it when they received it. They wanted to surpass the law of God. They were law keepers on the outward side. And they were upstanding citizens and the religious authorities of the day. Josephus the historian Jewish historian he was actually a Pharisee himself so I learned this week he estimated that before the fall of the temple in Jerusalem in, in about 80 70 there had been some total of about 6,000 Pharisees so they were a very select group a limited group of very elite men not just anyone could be a Pharisee and they were highly highly respected by the Jewish people I'm sure every Jewish mother would have hoped that her daughter would have brought home a Pharisee to dinner. The tax collector, on the other hand, they were on the other end of the spectrum. I'm sure if a a daughter had brought home a tax collector, the father would have got out his uh, bow and arrow or something, whatever they had back then. (laughs) The tax collectors, they were the low of the low in society. You couldn't sink any lower in Jewish society than to be a tax collector. A tax collector like the man in this parable, he would have been a Jew, but a Jew that had turned his back on his fellow Jews. The Romans had, had come in and they'd, they'd conquered the land of Israel, and as, as they did with all the people that they conquered, they levied a heavy tax upon them. And so the tax collector would go to the Romans, and the Romans would sell somewhat of a, a franchise to him, And he could go and collect the sales tax and the poll tax and all the other kinds of taxes. Every year, the tax collector would pay the fee to the Romans that they required so he could collect the taxes. The catch was that everything he earned on top of that, everything he gathered on top of that fee was his to keep. It doesn't take much imagination to guess what would happen. These men, the tax collectors, they would try and get all the money that they could. They were known for being dishonest and conniving, enriching themselves at the hands of their fellow Jews. No matter how rich they became, even if they were the richest people in their area, no one wanted anything to do with them. They were the outcasts of society. An example of this, you see in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus is eating supper at Levi's home and his disciples are approached and they ask him, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The comparison is made. They are equal in the eyes of the people. And even Jesus in his own statement, when it comes to church discipline in Matthew 18, he talks about a person who has sinned and if that person sinned against you, you ought to go to them. If they still don't ask for forgiveness, you ought to go to them with somebody else. If they still don't ask forgiveness, you bring them before the church. And if they still don't confess their sin and ask for forgiveness, he says, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. You treat them like an outcast, someone that you are not to have any association with. Couldn't be a a greater comparison in characters here. One, a respected, honorable man in authority. People looked up to them and wanted to be like them. A man who everyone considered righteous. And the other, a hated, despised, shunned man. Someone whose profession was known to be deceitful and dishonorable. A man who everybody considered to be the worst of sinners. To bring it into today's context, it would be somewhat like the police commissioner or the the head of police. Contrasted with a rapist or, or something like that. That is the heinousness of the comparison. here. They were both going up to pray. One who knows nothing of righteousness and the other who is supposed to uphold righteousness. But not only are the characters contrasted though, but their actions as well. You see the difference. Their postures and their prayers were different. Jesus said that the Pharisee stood by himself, whereas the tax collector stood far off. The Pharisee stood alone because he thought he was better than everybody else there. Whereas the tax collector stood far off by himself because he thought he was worse than everybody else. The Pharisees' prayer was was long and, and it was loud. The tax collector's prayer was was short. The Pharisees' prayer was completely wrong, and the tax collector's prayer, prayer was completely right. It doesn't take much theological knowledge to, to note the defect in the Pharisees' prayer. He begins his prayer by addressing God, and that's that's a good start, but he's not looking to God here. He uses the first person pronoun five times in his prayer. I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Notice he doesn't ask for anything here. He doesn't confess anything. Anything here. His prayer is centered upon his own righteousness. He's not offering a prayer to God. He's offering his resume. There's no confession. There's no acknowledgement of past or or current sins. There's no confession of need. There's no asking for grace and mercy. He's not praying. He's proclaiming here. He's not proclaiming God. He's proclaiming himself. He does not need God, he does not want God. His bottom line is praise and applause from others. The tax collector, he's totally different in his actions. His posture is different, his prayer is different, his head is down. He doesn't even lift his eyes to the heavens when he prays. Near and I are currently in the process of of toilet training with Noah, which is quite a task. The other day, after not hearing much noise from him for a little while, about 10 minutes, we we went out to see him out in the lounge room and, and he just happened to be going to the toilet on the floor. And after calling his name very calmly, he, he comes over to us and uh, he has his head down and, and he does not want to make eye contact with us. He knows what he has done and, and he knows that we are disappointed, even angry at him. And the tax collector he approaches God in the same way with his head bowed beating his chest over and over again. He knew where his sins had come from. He wasn't blaming anybody else. He wasn't blaming his circumstances. He simply offers this beautiful short prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's short but but profound. This man knew himself and he knew himself so well that he knew he was a sinner. John Calvin said, True knowledge is is having knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves both. The tax collector, he has the right view of God. He knows God is is perfectly holy and demands holiness. And he knows that he is a sinner. And he lacks holiness in and of himself. He is a man of holiness. Humility. Pharisee knows neither God nor himself, and the cause is is his self-righteousness and pride. First contrasts are the characters and their actions. One respected, one hated, one proud, one humble. Still at this point, Christ's audience would have would have thought that they knew the outcome of this story. Secondly, Jesus is not only contrasting these two characters and their actions, but he is contrasting their hearts. You think about these two characters, the Pharisee. He would have memorized Old Testament scriptures. He would have known them through and through. His mind was filled with biblical knowledge. But that's about as far as it went. As one commentator says, the distance between our head and our heart is only about 12 inches, and yet it can be the hardest distance to travel That is what we see here in this Pharisee he is all knowledge he thinks he can bring something to God he actually believes that he has something that he can offer God he is deluded into thinking that he can gain God's favor by being good he thinks he can tithe enough and pray enough he thinks he can serve enough and he thinks he can do enough to earn favor with God in fact, the Pharisee is so deluded in his thinking about his own heart that he busies himself with looking around and pointing out others' sin. Thank you, God, that I am not like that man over there. He easily recognizes others' sin, but yet is so blind to his own. It can be incredibly easy, right, to confess others' sin for them. It's quite something to confess your own before the Lord. The Pharisee has no self-awareness. He talks a lot about himself and does not know the true condition of himself. And he does not know God. He looked around and compared himself to others and thought, I'm better than that person, so God must be pretty pleased with me. This is where he started to go wrong. The standard is never others. The standard is always God and His holiness. The Lord says, be holy as I am holy. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Pharisees surpassed other men in doing good. But that is not the standard. God is. He is unlike God. And God is the standard for all of us. You see, God must remain jealous so that he can uphold a standard of perfect righteousness. Or he becomes unjust. He is not impressed with me words or or actions. In his heart, the Pharisee is focused only on how superior he is to others, yet blind to how little he himself looks like God. In his heart, the tax collector is also not perfect. His righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, but yet his heart is different. He understands fully who he is and fully who God is. And because of that, he comes to the Lord in all humility. He cries out for mercy. He wouldn't dare declare his own righteousness before the perfectly righteous God. He instead pleads with God God, grant me mercy. It's a profound prayer in in such few beautiful words. It's even more profound and can be brought out even more in the original language. The word used there for for have mercy is a verbal form of the word that is used to describe the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Remember, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. On On top of the Ark there was a lid with the two cherubim with their wings pointing together, two cherubim, two angels. Their outstretched wings would touch each other in the middle. And in between those two cherubim was what was called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, the high priest would, would enter once every year and he would take with him the blood of the lamb and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. So that when God looked down from heaven, he saw that blood covers over the law and it covers over the transgressions of people had committed against the law. The blood payment had been made for their sins and and God would then have mercy upon his people. A tax collector is, is using the verbal form of this term. He could translate it as, God be mercy seated towards me. He's looking to God alone to atone for his sins. He knows he has nothing to offer and he knows that God has everything to give. In his heart, he has the right assessment of himself, the right assessment of God. How does one be made right with God? It is by recognizing that God alone, through Christ alone, atones for our sins. That's what we remembered around the communion table as Jordan led us. The payment of our sins cannot be made by us, but rather only through the poured out life of Christ, the Son of God. We've seen the contrast of characters and their actions. Contrast of the heart. And lastly, look at the contrast of the outcome. Jesus says that the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee did not. You have to realize how shocking that would have been to the Jewish Is The Pharisee, the one who does good deeds, the one who is an upstanding citizen, the one to whom they look to for leadership in their national religious life. And you say, he? He goes home unrighteous? And the tax collector, the wicked one, the one that they know is a sinner, and he goes home justified? Jesus said, absolutely. He's declaring here, Jesus is declaring here that the gospel is counter-worldly. It is counter to everything this world thinks is the right way to God. Counter to every major world religion. Every worldly teaching. The gospel is counter to every human effort to be made right with God. Jesus says it's it's not your doing that determines your outcome. It's not the man who labors hard who is saved. Christianity is not human achievement, but rather divine accomplishment. What God has done, what God continues to do, and we just humbly receive. The tax collector confessed that he is a sinner and he pleads for God's mercy. And he went away justified. Whereas the Pharisee fell into the greatest trap of all, the the trap of spiritual pride. Never is an individual more at jeopardy when he or she is caught up in spiritual pride and self-righteousness. We often look at someone like the the tax collector, a a debauched person, and, and think that they're the worst of the worst. But the reality is that the most debauched people at least know that they are sinners. Like Jeff mentioned with this prison ministry that we'll be starting up soon, at least those guys know where they stand. They are sinners. The last step for them now is to run to Christ for grace and mercy. Whereas the self-righteous person doesn't see themselves having any need to confess sin. And they still have to run to Christ. They have two hurdles that they have to clear. Nothing is worse than spiritual pride because it undermines the very essence of faith. If someone is spiritually proud, they have no need for faith. The Pharisee had his eyes towards heaven, but he did not see God. The tax collector had his eyes looking at the earth and refused to look up at God, and yet he sees and he knows God. They ask again how can one be made right with God? I want to offer three applications this morning before we close in, in order to answer that question. Firstly, This is a parable about justification. It's a parable about forgiveness. The tax collector went away justified, the Lord Jesus says. The Pharisee did not. Martin Luther once said that justification is the chief article of the Christian religion. John Calvin said justification is the most important doctrine for your soul. If you misunderstand this, you misunderstand everything. What is justification, you might ask? Justification is the declaration of God that we have a right standing before him. is a declaration that we are righteous. Not that we have become righteous by the things that we have done, like the Pharisee thought he could gain justification by his own works, but rather by the righteousness of another. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we are robed in his righteousness. The unblemished lamb, the the sinless life, the one who died upon the cross to take our guilt and sin upon himself so that we might have his righteousness. The blessing of, of justification takes nothing from us at all. Our only responsibility is to humbly come in faith and repentance, humbly before the Father. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. How is one made righteous with God? It is only by the righteousness of another. Faith in Christ is the only door into heaven. It is the instrument by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. The Pharisee thought he was justified by his good works, yet he was wrong. He was deadly wrong. The tax collector knew he needed the grace of God, the righteousness of God, and he was right tax collector came to God in faith and he is justified. This is a, a beautiful promise. It's all who through the prompting of the Spirit recognize their sin and turn to God through Christ and cry out for mercy. That mercy is theirs. God will forgive your sins and you will be justified. Your sins may be great like that of the tax collector and you still can be forgiven. You can be an outcast, yet still be accepted. You can offer a weak, feeble prayer, and yet it can still be heard. Just thinking as well, the the same Jesus who told this parable is the same Jesus who sits enthroned above, who hears our prayers and says to the Father, These are mine, the price has been paid, the blood has been shed, the law has been fulfilled. They have my righteousness upon them. Mercy is theirs. Forgiveness is theirs. If you are in Christ, justification is yours. last line of our text this morning, He who humbles himself will be exalted. You switch out the word there, exalted, for salvation. If you humble yourself before Christ, if you come to Him by the power of the Spirit, in faith and repentance, you will be exalted. You will be saved. Do you truly understand this this morning? Do you know the blessing of being robed in Christ's righteousness or being declared righteous, being justified? Or are you on the other side of the contrast here? For everyone who exalts himself, he will be humbled. Sounds pretty calm, right? No! No way! The man who thinks he is okay, the man who thinks he can do it on his own, he will have to bear the unimaginable punishment that is eternal separation from God. There are only two camps here, no middle ground. Two ways, either exalted or humbled, protected or doomed, saved or condemned. My prayer is for everyone here that we would be in the first camp. That we would know the blessing of being robed in Christ's righteousness. But if you are uncomfortable here this morning, if something isn't quite sitting right and the Spirit is prompting you to ask, where do I sit? Please do not leave this place without being made right. Please do not leave without speaking. Secondly, if you know the true blessing of of justification, can I ask, do you examine your hearts for the sin of pride and and self-righteousness. Even though we, we know the blessing of salvation, we still can be bitten by the sin of, of spiritual pride. And pride and, and self-righteousness are often the hardest sins for us to recognize in and of ourselves. The telltale signs, though, of spiritual pride and, and righteousness, self-righteousness rather, are in this passage before us. The Pharisee he approached God without asking for anything. How often do you find yourselves on your knees crying out to God in need? How often do you confess sin in your lives? Is it a daily occurrence? The old saying someone who is much in confession is much with the Lord. It's a beautiful saying. Do you begin your day in prayer asking for the Lord's blessing or his, his leading throughout the day? Because in doing so, you recognize his, the dependence upon Him through your day. Then at the end of the day, you, do you, when you're lying in bed, do you look back and think, where have I sinned against you today, Lord? And then confess your sin and, and ask for forgiveness. Is this a regular practice for you in your walk? Another way of noticing pride or, or self-righteousness is, is how we look at others. Are we like the Pharisee here and look at others with disdain and and contempt? Do we actually consider others better than ourselves? Or do we look at at others in church and think, if only they thought like I do. Do we distance ourselves from some purposefully in the body because they just don't quite measure up to our standard? Right now, as, as we listen to this, are our minds running with others in the congregation rather than contemplating our own souls? Contempt towards others is a red flashing light that we have the spiritual pride, or the spiritual cancer of pride within. Examine your hearts. See if it is so. Someone who has been made right with God, spiritual pride should be cut out. So, know the blessing of justification. Examine your hearts to see if there be any pride or self righteousness. Third and, and finally, can I ask, do you pursue? Humility in your life. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James says in his book, God gives grace to the humble. So let's ask the question, do we cultivate humility in our lives? Do we labor after it? Do we chase after it, cultivating it in our daily walks? Ask, how do we cultivate humility? humility well to cultivate humility we must examine ourselves we must confess sin we must practice the spiritual disciplines of of praying and reading the scriptures we look to god and christ throughout the day and regularly confess our need for him if we are cultivating humility we promote others not to to flatter them but but to see them exalted We pray for others. We celebrate the accomplishment of others. And we labor quietly in the background. We serve in in places with no earthly recognition. We give praise and we give thanksgiving regularly. And we think very little of praise and thanksgiving when it is received by us. And yet, even doing all these things, you come to the end and you realize even these things, they are nothing. They are but a joy because of what Christ has done in our lives. Finally, and most importantly, my I add, if we want to cultivate humility, we need to meditate upon the cross. Not what we can do, but what Christ has done. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to dust. This is to look at the Son of God and contemplate. The cross. That beautiful old hymn, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count count but loss, poor contempt on all my pride. We can't help but reflect upon the fact that we are sinners when we stand before the cross because it was our sin that put Christ there. We have nothing to give. All those noble thoughts we have about ourselves quickly dissipate in the light of The cross. No proud man has has ever stood before the cross and said, That Saviour is mine. Jonathan Edwards said once, The pleasure of humility is the most refined, inward, and exquisite delight of this world. And so I pray that that would be the same for you here this morning, that we would continue to cultivate true humility in our walk. With the Lord, how can one be made right with God? That is a question that we began with this morning, and the Lord has answered it so beautifully in this parable. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray, Heavenly Father, Lord. We come before you now, and how can we not be humbled as we think upon you, as we think upon Christ, and what he has done and continues to do in our lives, Lord? Lord, we confess to you that often we fail and we fall short of your standard, Lord. Daily we do this, but yet we know that in Christ we have been declared righteous before you, and so we thank you for this, for all eternity, Lord. We praise your name, and thank you now, in the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray.